Well, I didn't intend to have three sessions of introduction, but I assure you that uh, this whole semester will not be an introduction to the Book of Mormon. We are so used. Yeah, I know. <laughs> didn't want to disappoint you, so. Only three weeks of introduction? Only three weeks, yeah. But I do intend to get into an overview. I thought we would get that far last week, but that's okay. We're not on a schedule, right? That's right. So, before we get into the overview, so we're going to go through the whole book in one session, which to some of you that's miraculous to be able to do that, but uh, that's my goal, and that's what somehow we'll end up doing today. Just a couple of reminders just to kind of introduce us and get Back into the book of Romans, just a good a quote that I gave you the first week that we looked at Romans. Godet, he's an older commentator, written several commentaries, says the following, It is the greatest masterpiece the human mind has conceived, describing the book of Romans in his commentary. He goes on, in studying it, we find ourselves at every word face to face with the unfathomable. And I think that's a good description of Romans. Showed you a lot of photographs. I'm going to show you just a few more, mainly by way of introduction, just to remind you. And the gendrons just returned, so if you have any comments, please add to them. So you can see the remains of first century Rome. There's a part right in the center of the city that has been kind of roped off so that you uh, can go back to ancient Rome. And most of those date even before the first century, and certainly most of it were in existence when Paul was on the scene and later would have visited Rome. In our introduction, we mentioned that Paul is the author. So we've seen, I gave you evidence for that, even though in some circles it is disputed. The audience is the church at Rome, which numbered to about a 1,000 probably even a little bit more than that. But it wasn't one unified church in terms of meeting. If you read the conclusion to the book, you realize that there were many house churches, many individual congregations, some of them probably even smaller than what we have here this morning. Certainly some of them probably a little bit bigger, but uh, many house churches. So it wasn't one big mega church, but several little ones. The occasion is Paul realized that he was running out of time on his third missionary journey. I think he intended to visit Rome. I think in his thinking, in his planning, his desire was to make it to the Roman Empire's center, most important city in the Roman Empire. And by the time he gets to Corinth, he realizes that uh, he's not going to make it back to Jerusalem in terms of his other plans before Pentecost, etc. So he does the next best thing. Rather than trying to make a quick visit over there, he writes this letter, and I think in the providence of God, because what he is writing is so important to all of the church throughout church history, God used that in order for... Paul to write down probably the very theology that he would have delivered in person had he visited the city of Rome. So rather than uh, visiting, God, I think, gave him 
an opportunity to write a book. And as far as the Romans were concerned, and as far as Paul was concerned, this is the second best thing. So we are the beneficiary. So this is about 56, 57 A.D. at the end of the second missionary journey. And he writes from Corinth, and obviously to the church that resides in the city of Rome. The purpose of the book is predominantly doctrinal. And I take it that this is the essence of the theology of Paul, and it touches many areas. The main focus is soteriology. That's the doctrine of what? The doctrine of salvation. But it goes way beyond that. In fact, it touches probably on just about every (coughs) theological category that you can think of in the book, including eschatology. There's some passages that deal with future events. So it's predominantly doctrinal, but it's a letter designed for a particular group, the church that resided in Rome. So it has all of the features of the letters that were very common in the first century. We looked at characteristics, obviously, not only is the purpose doctrinal and theological, but the main emphasis is theological. And I gave you a lot of reasons for that. We ended talking about the legal characteristics of the book. The language that he uses are legal terms. So to better understand this book, it's good to think in terms of legal arguments, legal terms, legal concepts. Now I've said many times that the word, the theological terms in the Bible, every single one of them that I'm aware of, have an everyday usage. In other words, the Bible's not using some spiritual heavenly language and using these words that are not common to the everyday man. They're words that are taken out of the culture, and now they're used with an additional meaning, a theological meaning. And you can see that in virtually every theological term. So what Paul is doing is he's taking from the culture of the first century, primarily the the language of the courts, and using those. And by the way, some of those same terms were used in the Old Testament with the same theological additional meaning to them. So they have a background and they have a meaning that the everyday person can understand. And that's true of every theological term. For example, some of the terms, for example, law itself. All cultures have law. All cultures have a code that people are required to obey. You have traffic laws, you have civic laws, you have all kinds of laws. Well, the biblical word that comes from the Old Testament, God has a law as well. So when it speaks of the law, it speaks of a code, a standard that God has established in terms of law when it refers in that theological sense, but it just comes right out of the culture. So also, the idea of guilt. That's just a common human characteristic because all of us are sinners. But in a court of law, guilt has certain connotations and certain meanings. So also, in God's court, or God as judge of the universe, mankind, in fact, one of the main arguments of the book, is that we all stand guilty before a righteous God. And, in fact, we stand condemned, just like a criminal would stand in court, and after all the evidence is presented, 
the criminal is condemned to a certain sentence, depending on the law. And in terms of us spiritually, we are condemned to an eternal separation from God. So you see kind of the everyday connotation and the additional meaning in terms of the theology of condemnation. We are dealing with eternal issues and an eternal condemnation. And there's no hope of escape from that condemnation. That's the main theme of the book of Romans. But there is a way based on the work of someone else that has taken on that condemnation upon himself. And in that court of law, he takes all that is legally our responsibility and God has provided a way that that person can serve the sentence. In other words, take all the condemnation that we deserve in order that we may stand before the judge of the universe and be justified. That's a legal term. Or the common way that we describe that concept is we describe it as being acquitted. Not because we are innocent. Not because God grades on the curb. The law and justice must be effected. So someone else may, has to pay that penalty. You see that? It's all from the law courts. So we have justification. We have The standard is righteousness. And rather than the standard of human law, when the word is used in the, the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, the standard is God's standard that he has revealed in his law, and he is the standard. He is the only righteous one. And the, the standard is perfection. You see that? So that's another legal term, the concept of righteousness. We'll, we'll spend a lot of time on that because that's the most common word. It occurs how many times? 55. All right, 55. You were here last time. <laughs> There's also this word of propitiation. That's a legal term. It comes out of the courts. The law must be satisfied in every every stipulation, every aspect of the law must be satisfied. God's justice must be satisfied. Or the term that we use, and the courts would use the word propitiation. If you substitute the idea of satisfaction, that's what that word deals with. So also, God's justice, God's law, God's righteousness is propitiated by the penalty that Jesus Christ took on himself on our behalf. In other words, he satisfied all the legal requirements of a holy, righteous God. But it's a legal term. And then we have the idea of imputation, which is also not only a legal term, but a, a word from, from economics the idea of something being credited to someone else. I could deposit a check in your bank account, and if I have the right numbers and put your name on the check, I can instruct the bank to credit to your account whatever amount I put on that check. Now, don't count on that. I'm probably not going to do that. If I did do that... You would have the full credit of the full amount of that check credited to your account. So also in a legal sense, we are credited with the full amount that Jesus paid such that we could be said 
we have received imputation of the whole righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus is totally righteous, and he put to our account that righteousness. That's part of justification. So this is a tremendous idea. To our account has been credited perfection, perfect righteousness. Now, it doesn't change us, doesn't make us any different. That's part of the growing process, the whole Christian life. And the book of Romans is going to deal with that issue as well, where we we are designed to grow in righteousness from that initial imputation of righteousness. Make sense? So think legally when you think of the book of Romans. And just to kind of put us back in the first century, which had law, which had politics, just a couple of photographs also to kind of remind you of some of the things. I showed you these when we were looking at the Olivet Discourse. One of the arches, you guys probably walked through that and saw that one, right? The Arch of Septiminus, Severus. You can visit it if you go to Rome, but I want you to notice a couple of things. In the distance there is the Arch of Titus. And you probably remember from the Olivet Discourse what's on that. See the one in the background there? There it is close up, Arch of Titus. But notice, very interesting, notice this relief right there. I'll zoom in on it. And if you remember, this this memorializes the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., So obviously this arch was built after 70 A.D. And it memorializes the taking of the temple treasures and bringing them to Rome. And it was under Titus, who was a Roman general at the time, eventually became emperor. And probably that conquest of the nation of Israel in the first century in 70 A.D. elevated his status such that eventually he was an emperor. But you can go to the city of Rome, and you can see that memorial memorialized on that uh, arch there. And then there's others as well, Arch of Constantine, several of them. They have different things that they memorialize. Okay, back to the legal case. Here is the essence of the case that Paul is presenting, and we'll see that in the overview. We'll see what he's doing. The main thing, this is in his introduction, 16 and 17, He presents that there's power in the gospel. He's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power unto salvation. There's tremendous power. And the rest of the book is going to expound on that power that is available. The power to change the human heart. The power to convert from deadness to life. The power that is able to bring a person from eternal condemnation to eternal salvation. There's power in the gospel. So he lays out, this is the case that he's going to present, and then beginning in verse 18, he's going to argue that case as if he's presented it before a judge, before an audience that is hearing this case. And we're listening in on this case as we read the book of Romans. He's going to make the point, he's going to establish the condemnation of all mankind. All are guilty, Jew or Gentile, so he's going to deal individually with those two groups, 
And his great conclusion is all stand condemned. And there's nothing that we can do to change the, the situation. We, are, we stand condemned before a righteous and holy God. But justification is made available or it's provided. And it's provided simply on what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. Nothing that we can do to change the situation. Nothing that we can do to remedy our condemnation. Apart from God has done, every single human being is condemned. Every single human being cannot. So justification is provided on what Jesus Christ has done. Now think legally. This is the case that he's presenting. This justification is comprehensive. It includes Jew and Gentile. Now, this is revolutionary in the thinking of a Jewish person in the first century. So it's comprehensive. It is provided and available to anyone who is condemned. All sinners. All scumbags, right? (laughs) And... After you get to the section that deals with kind of the security of that justification, chapter 8, we are secure in that. In other words, no one can interrupt that love of God, which is the basis of all of this justification, because God loves us. The Israelite, the Jewish person, is going to say, well, what happens to us if, in fact, we are set aside as a nation because he's already uh, made uh, that clear as well. Chapters 9 through 11 is a section that deals with the nation of Israel particularly. And we can use that today as well, because there's a lot of false teaching concerning the nation of Israel today, and the place that God has for them. The majority of the church basically says God is done with Israel. And some go to the extent of even anti-Semitism, some churches. Martin Luther, for example, even. Israel is only temporarily set aside. That's part of the case that he's laying. And in fact, all of Israel shall be saved in a future time. Future from the church age. Church age is going to end, and God is going to go back and fulfill everything that he has promised, all of the covenants that he has made with the nation of Israel, and all of Israel will be saved. It's part of the case that he's building. And if you understand all of this, so this great comprehensive justification includes Israel, some of which Israel will not respond until a future time. Now, Jews that respond to Christ now in the church age, they become a part of the church. But those that reject Christ, even during the church age, God is going to bring calamity upon them in order that they will, in fact, respond. And we saw that in the Olivet Discourse. Okay? So, from that, that section, at the end of chapter 11, there's this abundant praise that God has provided a means that all those that are condemned have an opportunity to find justification. And it's by imputation. And it's simply on the basis of trusting that everything that Jesus did can be credited to my account. And the moment a person does that, trusts and abandons every effort to try to do something to please God or to get on God's right side, 
when you abandon that and simply trust what Jesus has done, at that moment, you make moment of faith, you are justified. And then there's abundant praise. That's the case that he's going to make. That's the summary of the book of Romans. Then the last part is, well, how should we live in light of that? In other words, once we are justified, how should we now grow in that righteousness such that we gradually, and we never make it until we go to be with him, but how do we grow in righteousness? And it deals with sanctification, which is really another word that's related to the law and a legal mindset. So that's the essence of the book. So let's take a look. Well, there's some unique features of the book of Romans. It's one of the most theological, obviously. It is the most formal of all of letter, the letters of Paul. And it has some other unique features, but we'll leave them as we look at some of the details. In this book, in fact, let me use the outline. On the back side of your outline sheet, I've given you a brief outline of the entire book of Romans. And what I'd like to do is walk us through that and see how Paul lays out this legal case in the the tribulation period. There are some Israelites that remain rebels, and in fact, Ezekiel speaks of them. They have lost their opportunity, just like all Gentiles that reject Christ. In other words, they remain condemned and have to serve the sentence, which is eternal separation. Okay? There's only one alternative, Jesus Christ. For Israel, that's their Messiah. That's the only alternative, the only escape from condemnation. Jeff? There's one other verse in Ezekiel I find interesting. And I think it's in Ezekiel. And God says, with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, I will be king over you. Yeah. If you do a word search on the word king, it'll pop up here. Blue letter Bible over there. But it turns out that's actually a backward reference to Samuel where they rejected God's king. Right. So there's you know, 500, 550 years or so in between those two lives. Yeah. And in the future, when Jesus returns, he comes as judge and he comes as king. And he will establish a thousand-year kingdom where he will reign and Israel will be the prominent nation again. It's part of some of the covenants that he's made with the nation of Israel. Gentiles are a part as well, but we respond to Israel's Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. All right? Okay. I see a five-part division of the book of Romans, the five Roman numerals there. Usually, I would incorporate the introduction of a letter of Paul and a conclusion. I would put it within the divisions, but because these are the longest introduction and the longest conclusion, I've broken them out separately and put them as a separate division. Now, you could outline it either way, so whatever is your preference. And if you do that, then really the book of Romans has really only a threefold division. In other words, a threefold division. And from the outline sheet, you can see the first eight chapters, God has provided, or the provision of righteousness. Provision of right standing before a holy God. God has made that available. It's provided. Now, you can break that down into a couple of parts. First of all, he argues that, first of all, you must 
start with the fact that everyone stands condemned. And there is none righteous, no, not one. And because none is righteous, then all stand condemned, but there is a way to receive that justification. That's uh, chapter 3, verse 21 through the end of chapter 5. So in that part, righteousness is provided to the scumbags or to the condemned or to the sinner. And then from that, we have, after that is accomplished in the life of the unbeliever, where he receives a standing of righteousness before the legal judge, now sanctification is the process of how we grow, the principles of Christian growth, into becoming more and more righteous. Make sense? So that's the provision, and I divide that into three parts. And then he deals with chapters 9 through 11 that I mentioned earlier. God's righteousness is vindicated because now it appears that God's going back on his promises. He made all these promises, all these covenants of the nation of Israel. So the Jew is standing there, well, what about all those covenants concerning us as a nation? Well, this section deals with three issues. God is perfectly righteous in setting Israel aside. Because Israel has rejected the Messiah. So God is righteous in setting them aside. And he could, in fact, leave them set aside, except that he has entered into covenant with them. So in chapter 10, he speaks of the rejection of Israel, but it's not total, it's not complete, it's not final. Chapter 11, there's a future restoration because God is going to honor those covenants that he's made in spite of the sinfulness of the nation of Israel. So his righteousness is vindicated and he's perfectly righteous in setting them aside, but it's not total, it's not complete. There's a partial hardening that exists today, but there's a future restoration and it's in that context. Chapter 11, all Israel shall be saved. So that's the big picture. And then we have the fourth division there. How do we now implement these in different situations in everyday life? And he's going to deal, I've broken them down there, in relationship to God, in relation to the church, in relation to society, in relation to Christian liberty. So he's going to deal with all of those in chapters 12 through the middle of chapter 15. And then we have a chapter and a half of conclusion where he issues many, many greetings to the the people in the Church of Rome, and probably primarily leaders. And some of those leaders that are mentioned are probably leaders of house churches that probably represent uh, 20, 50, maybe even 100 people. Make sense? So there's your big picture of the Book of Romans. Three major divisions, and then an introduction and conclusion, which would give you five divisions. So let's look at it individually. Yep. As rebellious as this was to them, I can imagine. To whom? I mean, just you know, the Gentiles on the Israel side. Um, I mean, we have like as to how they... Oh, yeah. Yeah, the Gospels. Yeah, Jesus presented the kingdom. Remember Matthew? Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand because the king is here. So the Gospels make that explanation, and particularly the Gospel of Matthew that's addressed to Jewish people. Yeah, the, the Pharisaic Pharisaic response was one of rejection. And then we see what happened. The nation followed, obviously. 
That'd be the gospel. And then again, in the book of Acts as well, it was the, the, the Jewish nation that actually persecuted the church. It's not till later that the Roman Empire persecuted the church. Yeah, that was the response. So in the introduction, we have a formal introduction, which is pretty typical of Paul. He explains that he is the author, and he describes a little bit of who he is. So we have a clear picture of who the author is. And we need to read some of those. Someone read the first three verses. Okay? And the rest of you be ready to, to read. And those of you that are new, don't be afraid. Just jump in. And Linda, you got it? Paul, the state of Christ in you Okay. Okay. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Good. And you notice she's been well trained. Read the whole sentence. Very good. Notice just a few things. Real quick. Paul, a bondservant. Now, in the New Testament, this was the lowest of slaves, and that's the attitude that we take. You know, we have no claim on God. We come to him on his terms, based on what he has done, and now we have the attitude of, Lord, I'm yours. What can I do? How do I serve you? And how do I go from being condemned on to growing as a believer. This is Paul's attitude. This is his humility. He's also, it mentions in there, an apostle. I'm going to expound that whole verse starting next week, and we'll talk about all of these dimensions of an apostle. But basically, he's identifying himself in a formal introduction. You can read the rest of it, and it's typical Paul. He also has a personal introduction. That's verses 8 through 15, where he lays out some of his plans, where he... So you have a formal introduction, you have a personal introduction through verse 15, where he lays out some of those plans to visit them and some other things in there. And then we have the theme or the main emphasis or the main idea, or you might even say the case that he's going to lay out. That's verses 16 and 17. And then he begins in verse 18, which begins the next major section, the provision of God's righteousness. And that'll run to the end of chapter 8, at least the way I've outlined the book of Romans. And the first subdivision, that'd be A, that's on your outline sheet, we have the condemnation, verses 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, where he's going to lay this legal case out that all stand condemned. And he's going to establish the guilt of basically everyone except the Jewish people. That's Gentiles, the nations or Gentiles, which includes you and I, except uh, those of you that have Jewish background. But you have Gentile background, so it includes you as well. So chapter 1 basically lays that out. And that's a tremendous passage. We're going to spend, I doubt that we'll get out of chapter 1 this semester, just because that's such a tremendous passage. It explains so much. And very briefly, what he's going to do in that. He's going to, starts out, somebody read verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, and who hold the truth and righteousness. First statement is basically laying out the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is there because what he's going to develop is man's unrighteousness, who, how does the text describe it? 
suppress the truth. In other words, we are by nature, all of us, suppressors of the truth. We don't want to hear what God has to say. We don't want revelation. We don't want truth. That's our innate nature. Uh, we do not want what God has to say because we know that we can't live up to it. We know that ultimately we sense inwardly that there's nothing that we can do to please a holy and a righteous God. So he's going to give the reasons that the wrath of God is revealed. And if you notice it, what tense is the verb? This is very, very important. Present tense. In other words, you're going to be able to see the wrath if you look out into the culture. And the reason for that, first of all, man has rejected God's revelation. The text really tells us that God has revealed himself to all humanity. There's not a single person that has ever lived in history where God has not revealed himself. And we'll look at the details. He's revealed himself in at least two ways. We'll see that when we get into the text. I'm just giving you a big picture here. Man has rejected that revelation, and because of that, or through man's rebellious reasoning, I'm using R if you haven't already. Very good, you like that. Man's rebellious reasoning, in other words, he has re rejected this by his own thinking. I, I'm smarter than God. I can think through this thing. That has led to a ruinous religion. Because <laughs> we always replace the truth with something else. We replace the truth with false doctrine. And that ruinous religion means that righteousness is rejected because we substitute something else. And because of that... Actually, that pertains to beginning in verse 24. Yeah, 24, where God has righteously rejected us. Uh, somebody read verse 24. Therefore God gave them over to the degrading of their bodies. Okay, and you, and you read on, and he's going to describe the culture that we live in. And he describes the culture of the first century. And he describes the culture of basically every generation. And the way that the wrath of God is displayed in that he lets you go ahead and try to figure things out on your own. He lets you suffer the consequences of your sin and the culture suffers as a result. And when a culture gets so corrupt, God basically gives it up. And that's the point of this whole thing. In fact, it's emphasized three times. If you look at the next part of it, verse 24, therefore God gave them over to all these things. That's how the wrath of God is displayed. Verse 28, for this reason God gave them over, so God has righteously rejected all of mankind. Then he's going to deal with those that say, oh, but well, we have covenants. We have promises. We, you know, we have a special status. We have a standing before this holy God. And he's going to demonstrate the guilt of the Jews. And that's chapter 2 through 1 through chapter 3, verse 8. And he's going to show, yes, you have the revelation of God, the special revelation of God. Yes, you have special calling, but you are no better than the Gentiles because you're not living any differently than they are. And you stand condemned as well. In fact, why don't we read, somebody read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you, for in that which you judge another, you 
And then he goes on and explains how they condemn themselves. And he's speaking to those of you, in other words, the Jew is standing up there, we have this status, we have these covenants, we're kind of in a special place because we have a relationship with God, and he's saying, no, you don't. And they condemn themselves, and he's going to list that. And he's going to explain the basis of God's judgment in terms of the nation of Israel. So this judgment is based on truth. It's based, no one's going to escape it, including Jewish people, and particularly because their conduct goes against God's righteousness, and God's going to judge impartially. And the Jew has no claim in terms of individuals. They have special revelation. And they're going to be judged on the basis of special revelation. So the conclusion that it comes to, if all Gentiles, in other words, all non-Jewish people stand condemned, and if also Jewish people stand condemned, then what's the conclusion? Everybody. Then all are guilty. Okay? And we need to read that verse. Somebody read verses 9 and nine through 11. Who's got it? And what man? In other words, we Jews, are we better than they? Not at all, okay? All under sin. All stand condemned. Keep reading. As it is written, there is none who understands. Not even once. See the emphasis of that? He's arguing this case. He argues it. And he comes to this conclusion. Okay, here's the conclusion. There's not one righteous. None has a right standing before a holy God. There's none that even seeks after God. There's none that understands spiritual things. We may have a PhD, but we still don't understand spiritual things. That's the conclusion. And now he's going to deal with objections. The defense is going to say, I object. He's going to stand up in court. I object. And Paul's going to say, okay, present your objection, and he kind of summarizes it, and he's going to answer it. And you have this ten times. This is that legal thing that I was talking about. And the first one there is, let's see, in uh, verse 4. Somebody read verse 4. 3, 4. Okay, may it never be, is the way it's argued there. The Greek phrase is meganoito. Meganoito. What that means is heaven forbid. In other words, your objection just has no standing. May it never be. It's got to be thrown out of court. And now he's going to give the reason for it. And he goes back to the Old Testament and gives the basis for that. So God's faithfulness is not nullified. That's what the, the, the defense is saying. Well, that means that God's Faithfulness is done away with. It's, it's nullified if what you're saying, Paul, is true. If Israel is also condemned, and then this nullifies the faithfulness of God. And what he says, no, may it never be. Throw it out of court, judge. And it's thrown out of court. In 3, 5 through 6, we have the second one. And the objection that is thrown out, God's justice is not righteous. And he's going to deal with that. And the conclusion he comes to, he's already established that all stand condemned. God's justice, this is the objection that the defense throws out. And Paul is, is saying, appealing to the judge, may it never be, throw it out of court. Because he gives the argument, the rebuttal, you might say. 
So there's justification. We have the provision of it. Now he's going to deal with the only way of escape. And it's based on what Christ has done. We need to read 3.21. Someone read it. Now the righteousness of being witnessed by Okay, so this righteousness, if you look at the law, it is shown, it is demonstrated, and it's there. Keep reading. Read 22. When the righteousness of God, which where there is no difference. Okay, so it's available through faith, and faith alone, by those who believe. Read 24 and 25. Being justified freely by his through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God has set through faith in his to declare his righteous our past. Okay. Okay. So you see the little word propitiation? In other words, what Jesus did satisfied all the legal requirements of God's holy law. God is satisfied with what Jesus did. And it talks about that public display, which is the cross. He did it on the cross. He paid the penalty. When he died on the cross, he took everything that we deserve upon himself. He paid the penalty. In a sense, he experienced eternal condemnation. And I have no beyond what I can comprehend. But he took everything that we deserve on himself. And that little passage is full of theological content. But if you think of it legally, I think it will make sense. And we'll look at it in some detail Maybe three years from now. So it's provided, verse 21 through 26. It's through faith, and he's going to emphasize it's by faith, not by works. You can't perform. You can't do anything. You receive it by trusting in what Jesus already did on the cross. That's that prior verse there. So he's going to emphasize that, 27 through 21. It's through faith. And the defense is going to raise an objection 331, uh, does this nullify the law? And he's going to say, may it never be. May, you know, may it never be. In other words, there's no way. Throw this one out of court, judge. And he gives the argument why it should be thrown out. So we have the provision, we have faith. And now in chapter 4, he's going to illustrate it. And this is primarily for a Jewish audience. This is not new revelation. This is in the Old Testament. Abraham, who lived before the law, before God revealed the Mosaic law, Abraham was justified, and he uses that word. Abraham received righteousness. And how did Abraham receive it? Not on the base of anything Abraham did, it was by faith. So he's going to illustrate it. He's going to use David. David as well is part of the illustration. That's chapter 4. Chapter 5, once you have been justified, now there are all these benefits or blessings, you might say. That's chapter 5, 1 through 11. The last part of chapter 5, there's this, this lays a lasting foundation. That's chapter 5, 12 through 21. So that concludes the section called justification. And then the now, chapter 6 through 8, what are the principles that we need in order to grow to become more and more righteous? We are simply declared righteous. We are imputed. It's put to our account. We possess it. But now we need to draw on that account on a daily basis 
to implement it in our lives. How does that work? And we have this whole section on what we call sanctification. How do we grow? And this involves the entire Christian life for the rest of our lives. So these principles are how to live the life. So we have the principles in chapter 6. And again, we have two more objections, 6, 1 and 2. Does grace, in other words, if there's nothing I can do and it's all on the basis of grace and simply by faith, does this mean that, it, that I can live however I want to? Does this promote sin? Nope, let's throw that out of court. May it never be. So he's going to explain that. And then he said he argues against another false concept. Does this mean that sin increases? May it never be again. Throws that one out of court. So he's arguing like in a court of law. Chapter 7 gives us the problems, and there's two major problems there. You can't be sanctified through the law. That's one of the problems. Secondly, you can't be sanctified in the power of the flesh. Two major problems. And he gives us a couple more objections. The law is not sinful, so he has to argue that the law is perfect and righteous. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with me. And the law is not responsible for your sin. You can't say, well, I can't obey it, so it must be a problem with the law. He's going to answer that in 13 and 14. No, I am responsible. And the power, there's power available. That's chapter 8. Chapter 8 is full of the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that, in fact, we are able to live the Christian life. So it's chapter 8 where the power is revealed to us, made available. And it's through that power that we gradually, moment by moment, day by day, grow as believers to become more conformed to the image of Christ. And then we get to the third major division, chapters 9 through 11. And I've already kind of given you a, a little feel for that. Chapter 9 through verse 29, God is sovereign in electing or choosing the nation of Israel. And he reviews some of that calling. goes all the way back to the patriarchs. And God was sovereign in bringing Israel into a saving relationship as a nation, corporately. So God is working, and that demonstrates his righteousness. There's some other objections in there. God's not unjust in setting Israel aside, 9, 14 through 16. There's a present rejection of God in 9, 30 through 10, 21. Present rejection as a result of Israel's sin. So it's not because of God's inability or God's unfaithfulness is because of Israel, but God remains righteous in that he's going to fulfill all of those promises, all of those covenants, and all of Israel will be saved. That's chapter 11. There's a future restoration, and it's future from the church age. That's where eschatology comes in. And by the way, we went into great detail in the Olivet Discourse on that future restoration. And there's more objections... 9 and 10, Israel's not rejected. He raises that. Did God reject Israel permanently, totally? Throw that one out of court. He's going to argue that part of the case. And then Israel's fall made a provision for Gentile salvation. Is this kind of out of whack? No, we'll throw that one out of court as well. So there's all 10 of your mate, Genetos. And that brings us to the last division, chapters 12 through 15, 
How does this look in everyday experiences in relationship to God? Chapter 12, 1 and 2, we probably need to read those. Somebody read those two verses. So you got it? Therefore, brothers, God doesn't love this one. love it. I urge you to present your holy and peaceful God. Okay. It begins by just simply giving yourself over to God. Okay, God, however you want to work in my life, however you want to use me, I'm available. Just like a Jew would present a dead sacrifice, a lamb on an altar as part of the Jewish ritual, so now you and I just put ourselves, but we're living. We're a living sacrifice. In other words, he can work through us to do as he sees fit, we just make ourselves available. And he's already developed some of those principles uh, in chapter 6. That's sanctification. That's sanctification. But this is how what it looks like. In other words, day by day, I just present myself, and in that process, we are conformed to his image as we allow him to work within us. So he deals with relationship to God, relationship to the church, and he deals with spiritual gifts and how the body should function in, in giftedness, so that's 3 through 21 of chapter 12. And then chapter 13, what about the government? What about society? He's going to deal with that. We submit. And in our form of government, we have the opportunity to participate. But basically, we submit to the authority. And he deals with the concept of authority there, too. All authority. Chapter 13, and then chapter 14 through 15, 13, in relationship to Christian liberty, where he deals with, sometimes you sacrifice your freedom for the benefit of others. Sometimes you limit your liberty, your freedom, because you love your brothers and sisters in such a way that you want you don't want to be a stumbling block to them. So that's how it looks in personal, individual relationships with one another. That's how this righteousness works itself out. Okay? And then he has a conclusion... 15, 14 through 16, 27, the end of the book. And he gives some purposes here of this grand plan that he's laid out. He lays out his plans to visit them. And then he gives them personal greetings, all of chapter 16. There's a doxology here. Okay, there's a closing doxology and a closing thought. We will, we will have all the principles that transform, but they must be applied. So I've given you all of the book of Romans, so now I can uh, go to be with the Lord. <laughs> we completed the book. All right. Yeah. What now? Now we'll go sentence by sentence, starting next week. And that will take the, certainly the rest of my day. Who wants to close first?